And let me invite you to open up God's Word to the book of John. We're going to be in the first chapter there, John chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me just pray for us. God, we do thank you again for your word and thank you for this, Lord, for all that you've done through Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we consider what you've written here, we pray that you would give us insight and understanding. Help us to know what we should do in light of what you've written here. Lord, I pray that those things that come out of my mouth and that are on my heart would be fully pleasing in your sight, in your hearing, and edifying to all of us. And God, if there's anything that is not of you, we pray that you would take that away from our minds. Lord, speak, we pray, through your word, by your spirit, for your people, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we begin, I know that I, in titling sermons, sometimes people really encourage you to come up with something catchy, something profound, and all I could come up with is prologue. What is a prologue? Well, if we were to take that word apart, it really comes from two words. It's a hybrid, like so many of our words are, pro meaning before and log meaning word or logos. So in a very real sense, a prologue is a word that happens beforehand, or as you might find in many books, a foreword, F-O-R-E-W-O-R-D. But it doesn't only happen in works of literature. Forewords, we see them as composers and filmmakers, authors alike use preludes, they use prologues, they use overtures and even the opening credits to give hints or clues to their audience about what may happen. If you're a, a movie or TV person and you like to watch movies over and over again, a lot of times I've noticed in, in watching something where there's a really profound opening credit scene, you get to see clues and hints about what's happening later on. And a lot of times you have to go back and see it again or read it again or hear it again to get a, chance, get a sense of what's going on. And occasionally that foreshadowed content gives up too much of the storyline. And so you, they need to announce a big spoiler alert on the front end. And maybe today that's a bit of what we should do. We have a big spoiler alert here. But a well-crafted prologue or introduction will... I think will create a sense of anticipation of what is to come. Whether it's an overture to a symphony or an opera where you, you get to hear those strains, those themes that they're going to be revisited in each of the following acts or movements of that piece. All right. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what that's from. That's weird. But today as we dive into the book of John, we are going to examine his prologue. These first 18 verses that, that Brian read really become that, that foreword to what is coming back, what he's going to share later on. And I'm not sure that any, any book of scripture is as profound in its introduction as John's gospel is. 
You know, in these 18 verses, John introduces us to Jesus and yet barely uses his name. He reveals, in, he reveals him in ways that are dripping with insights about his nature, about his character, about his uniquenesses and, and his work. We could really, in so many ways, spend weeks and months just examining the profoundness of what is in these first 18 verses. And yet we're going to spend about 30 minutes. And so I apologize for not doing it the justice that it deserves. In his commentary on the book of John, D.A. Carson noted 12 things that are in this prologue that he gets that get borne out through the rest of the book. And let me just show a few of these to you. Actually, I'll show you all the things that that he did. And and, and essentially what happened here in the prologue, we first get to see the preexistence of the logos or the sun. and, And that's again revisited later on. We get to see that in him, in Jesus, was life. And that is, again, visited later on. We get introduced to the idea that Jesus is light. And that that light was rejected by darkness. And that comes back in John three nineteen. We get to see that while this darkness is very present, it did not quench the light. And that comes back in chapter 12. The light coming into the world as something different, something unique, something brilliant. And we see that again in chapters 3 and 12. We, John introduces us to the fact that Christ was not received by his own. He was rejected by humanity and by his own people. And that is again seen in chapter 4. He was being born to, about people being born to God and not of the flesh. And that's revisited a few times. We get to see his glory. And again in chapter 12 that will be seen. We get to understand that He is the one and only Son, that there is truth in Jesus, and that no one has seen God except the one who comes from God's side. And Jesus has revealed God to us. I hope you can understand that just the, the tip of the profound depth of what John has written here for us to try to digest. And so today, as we look at his prologue, we're going to consider the word, the subject of the prologue, and and in fact, the subject of the entire gospel. And we'll consider a bit of what John is communicating about what we will observe about Jesus in the rest of the book as he explains this word as Jesus Christ. So let's first consider the nature of of the word. John opens his gospel, opens this prologue with these words, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that has been made. Now think about this as he opens with in the beginning. What does that make you think of? I think immediately John has taken us back to the beginning. He's taken us back to the book of beginnings. He's taken us back to Genesis chapter 1. And he intentionally wants us to think back that far, not just to the birth narrative of Jesus. He doesn't have a birth narrative in his book. He wants us to understand that Jesus is more than just a baby born in a manger. He is more. Nasser al Qatani is a Bible teacher and, he, and an evangelist and a new friend of mine and one of the guys I went to the Middle East with. And in a study that he did on John, he suggests that John is pulling us back to creation in order to kind of subtly paint a picture 
of the entire Trinity. I mean, think about this. Look at, in Genesis chapter 1, 1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there we have God, and we know him later on as God the Father. In the very next verse, we get to see another element of the Trinity, and that is the Spirit. In Genesis 1, 2, it says, The earth was, out, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we get God the Father and God the Spirit. And now John is inserting the word, the expression of God at the beginning, one whom we will see is Jesus. So God the Father, God the Spirit, and now the word, God the Son are present at creation. But think about this. How did God create everything? He created with his word. He created with a command over and over in the account of in the creation account. God simply said, let there be. And there was. But let's think a little bit more about this word that John is describing. And in many ways, the word is kind of wrapped in mystery, because if you think about it, who, who says things like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the bit. What is he saying? What is he getting at? He's, I think what John is communicating is that this word, this Jesus is God and yet he is distinct from God. He doesn't try to explain it. He simply wants that mystery to sort of rest on us, to, to make us think. Make it, let us be. How, how can God and distinct from God coexist? How can that be? together. And I think in many ways, John is using these words to pique our interest in order to get us to keep reading, in order to get us to understand and look for an understanding of what he's introducing here. And as the rest of the gospel unfolds, we'll see more and more of that. And yet I think it's important that we remain content with the mystery that we find in the word of God. In this place in particular, we might want to wrestle, how can this be? How can Jesus be the word? The Trinity in itself is something magnificent, and it's a doctrine of the church that is just mind-blowing. How can God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit be one and yet three? So I hope that when, when we find places like that in Scripture, that we wrestle with it. But when we don't have all the answers, that we can just be in awe of the fact that God is a great and mysterious God. You see, I think if we could explain everything about God, if we could get it all down, I mean, there are books and books and books that are written about doctrine, about the doctrine of God, doctrine of the Trinity, about Jesus. And yet, I don't think they all cover everything that there is to really be grasped in God. And so I think... If we could fully understand who he is and how he works, then he wouldn't be that great of a God. I know if my mind can get my head wrapped around him fully, then he's not a great God, but truly he is. John reveals that this word is human. In verse 14, he tells us that this word became flesh. And for some in John's day and in that century that followed, this was a, a big point of contention because there were some that said Jesus could not have come in the flesh if he was God because all flesh 
is evil. And yet we realize as we read throughout the rest of Scripture that it is vitally important that we see Jesus as fully human and fully God. I mean, that is the only way that he can accomplish his primary goal. In fact, one of the things the middle schoolers and I were talking about today was, was that centrality of the cross. And we're going to get to that in a, in a lot of weeks and several, you know, we really, we visited every Sunday, but we're not going to get to the cross until we get to chapter 20. But I think what's important for us to realize is that cross is central in order for Jesus death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection to have impact in our lives. He had to be fully God. He had to be fully perfect. He had to be fully human. He had to be both God and flesh. And so John gives us some hints about the nature of the word, but he also reveals a bit about the work of the word. If you want to continue taking notes, that is the next blank in your outline, the work of the word. And just as we use words to communicate, to, to work, we have to recognize that the word that John is writing about is work as well. And just as the spoken word of God in creation put all the universe in order, so we have to see that the lived word, the revealed word of Jesus works in profound ways. First of all, we've already seen briefly that, that he worked in creation. He was present there. In fact, in Colossians, it says that all things, John says all things were made through him. And Colossians has another section of scripture that beautifully explains the centrality of Jesus Christ in creation. But his participation in creation is more than just spinning things into existence. He's more than just the expression of God. He's more than just a command of God. The word also brings life. And so here in the prologue, John commingles the concepts of life and light together which we, again, will get to see elsewhere in the book in order to help us to see that another aspect, another, yet another aspect of God's creative work. But look at John 1, 4 to 5. It says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now think back to the creation account. What is the very first thing that God said, let there be? Light. The very first thing, you know, everything was darkness and God said, let there be light. And, and darkness was completely overcome by that. And so again, John, I think, has taken us back to creation, that spoken word that brings light into darkness, but also that spoken word that light brings life, that light brings hope. It seems like this life is more than simply existence. This life is the embodiment of light and darkness, that contrast that we see. First in the darkness of the uncreated universe and now in the darkness of a, of a world stained by sin. But there's a second element at of work that John foreshadows here in the prologue. And I think this really has to do, it's related to light and that has to do with illumination. You see, the word came like a light in dark places to reveal the true character and nature of God. It came to reveal his heart. He came to illumine the differences between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And he came to be a life-giving presence in the world. Look at what it says in chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. It says, true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I mean, think about these contrasts for just a a quick moment. There's a a bit of tragedy there. So you have Jesus, this word, this expression of God, this co-creator of the universe, steps into the world, into his creation, and yet he's not recognized by the very world he spun into existence. He came to his own people. Their literature had been prophesying about his coming, and yet his own people did not receive him. We'll see this throughout God, John's gospel as Jesus gets into multiple conflicts with various religious leaders as, as, as he tries to help them see, no, you've got this wrong, especially around the Sabbath, especially around rest. He's like, I, the Sabbath was made so that you could rest. It's not made to be a burden. And yet so often the religious leaders, and, and I think even today we sometimes, get, as pastors and elders, we can sometimes get so worried about morality and fail to see the grace and the rest and see the, the beauty that is in the love of God. See, Jesus in these conflicts with the religious leaders was helping them see that their actions were actually hindering true worship. And yet they're failing to yield to His authority in those things. But there is hope. Because Jesus is the redeeming one. He is the one who brings hope from despair. He is the one who brings life from death. He's the one who brings light into darkness. He's the one who brings new birth. And He made a way for all people to be His people. And John, in this, John introduces the idea of redemption, a theme that is marked by belief throughout his gospel. Notice what it it says there in verse 12. If you've got your Bibles open, it says, To all who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. But think about this. What's in a name? In our family, I think I've shared this before, names have had huge importance. Danielle's dad loves names. And, and so when, when all of us were getting ready to have kids and the, we were expecting, he's like, well, what names are you thinking of? Of course, you always wanted to kind of keep it a secret because once the baby's born and if you pick a, a weird name, nobody's going to say, oh, that's a weird name. But if you're thinking about it ahead of time and you tell people, of course, they all feel like it's free reign to say, oh, that's a bad name. Oh, that's a beautiful name. Right, so names were super important to our father, to, to my father-in-law, to Danielle's dad, and so as we're thinking about names, we we would borrow his name book, his baby name book, and we'd want to say, well, what does it, we like the name Zachary, but what does it mean? Well, it comes from Zachariah, which means the Lord remembers. Well, what what does Melody's name mean? Well, Melody is a melody; it means song, right? What about Zoe? life. And so all the kids, I mean, it was, it was, it's been really fun. In fact, there's one of, of Danielle's nieces. Her name is Jane, but the name that Fletcher and Nancy picked for her is Abigail. So her middle name is Abigail. Everyone calls her Jane. 
except Fletcher Nancy. She's Abigail. And so it's just kind of fun how this is. But, but that's our family, not Scripture. In Scripture, think about what happens. Throughout the Scripture, you'll see time and time again when names are used for a very specific purpose. For instance, Abram, his name means high father. Abram, is, 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 it's a sign of respect, and he's, he's, he's just given this beautiful name. And yet after Genesis chapter 17, Abram's name, God changes Abram's name to Abraham because he will be the father of many nations. And ultimately, think about this, all nations on earth have been blessed through him. Everyone who has an ethnically Jewish heritage can trace their lineage to some degree to Abraham. They see that. Abraham, oh, he is our father. But also, everyone who is of an Arab descent, all those tribes in the Arab Middle East, they find their lineage back to Abraham as well through Ishmael. But beyond just that, think about this. For those of us who are... um, Gentiles, as it were, who are not of Jewish or Arab descent. We also have been blessed through Abraham because Jesus Christ was a descendant of Abraham. Think about that. Roughly two-thirds of the population of the earth have been blessed so far through Abraham, father of many nations. He is appropriately named. But look at his grandson. Think about this. His, his grandson's name is Jacob, which means supplanter or heel grabber. And I know that's not, not it's like, oh, aren't there other translations? I don't know. We're, we're not going to look at the alternative. But think about Jacob's character. Here is a guy who tricked his brother out of his birthright, right? He tricked his brother out of the primary inheritance of his father. And then he tricked his father for a blessing. And then because he had to get away, he tricked his father-in-law into some of the best sheep and best livestock that he had and escaped. And then ultimately, while he's running away, God says, okay, enough's enough, Jacob. And he, he, Jacob has this encounter with God and, and they wrestle together. And God says, you are no longer going to be called Jacob. You're not a deceiver. You're not a, a heel catcher. You're not someone who's supplanting all the plants that are out there. Your name is now Israel because you've wrestled with God. You've strived with God. And yet we see that, of course, the whole nation of Israel gets their name from him. And think about all the ways that that name was so appropriate, the ways that, that they dabbled into idol worship and would come back and they dabbled into, you know, working on the Sabbath and and they would do all these things, kind of forgetting God and then coming back and this wrestling, trying to truly live and be faithful. So their name is truly appropriate. But yet John here says those who believed in his name, in Jesus name, well, what does Jesus name mean? Jesus name means salvation. His perfect life and undeserved death became the means of salvation for everyone if we would only believe, or as we said last week, if we would only entrust our lives to Him. In His name, He illumined the way to God. He illumined the compassionate character of God. But there's another way that the Word brought illumination, and that is through dwelling with us. Look at verse 14. 
John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this Word, this expression of God, became like us. He put skin on, or as we learned this weekend on the youth retreat, He became a dirt bag like us. Remember, Adam was created from the dust of the earth, so realistically we are all walking dirtbags. So Jesus took on our dirty flesh. And that word dwelt has that connotation of the Old Testament tabernacle. If you remember, the tabernacle was that temporary sanctuary that the people of Israel carried with them in the wilderness. And they would camp and they'd set up the tabernacle and and that was their means of worship. And all the tribes were camped up around this central tabernacle. And it became a symbol of God's presence, God's dwelling with with His people. And now this tabernacle is dwelling among us. See, where they needed a priest in the past, because of what Jesus came to do, he, became, he came to live and to fellowship with us. They needed sacrifices as an act of worship. So, we would get to see Him face to face. We would get, humanity would get to interact with Him. We get to see Him act with compassion. And bring healing and hope. Humanity would get to be touched by him. Several commentators have suggested that these words that John is using would would cause people of Israel to think back to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. When God is on the mountain and he's getting the law from, or not God, Moses is on the mountain with God and he's getting the law from him. And at one point in time, Moses says, God, show me your glory. Help me to see, help me to grasp the grandeur of who you are. And God says, oh, Moses. You don't know what you're asking. If I showed you me, you would die. So let me give you a small glimpse. So there's some uh, anthropomorphisms in that, in that passage where there's human attributes given to God in order to help us understand. So in that account, God says, I'm going to hide you in a cleft and I'll put my hand over you and I will pass by. You'll see the backside of my glory because that's all you can take. But as God did this in, in Exodus 34, 6 to 7, this is what Moses hears. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. See, John said that he, in, in Jesus we get to see this grace and truth. In many ways it is a nod back to Sinai where, where we might see grace as His steadfast love and we might see truth as God's faithfulness. And yet, John also gives us a bit more insight into the illumination that we see in Jesus, the Word. This won't be on the screen, but in John 1.16 it says, From His fullness we have received grace upon grace. And then he continues, For the law was given through Moses. 
and grace came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. So in, in Jesus, this word, we have revelation of God. We have in His words and actions insight into the heart and the nature of God. And I hope that when you and I read and study Scripture, especially the life of Jesus, that we will be awestruck by the beauty of God revealed through Jesus. I mean, think about this. The way that He cared for the outcast. The way that He loved the nameless and the unimportant. Giving them value and dignity. The way He healed the broken. The way that he corrected the self-righteous. The way that he lived sacrificially and so much more. Oh, that we would honor him by living in the way that he did. But not only do we get to glimpse the nature and work of the word, there's one last thing that John, I think, reveals to us, and that is the witness to the word. You see, one of the interesting things John does throughout this prologue is he, he, he pauses, he puts in these parenthetical statements about another person. He, he helps us understand that there's another John who came as a witness. You see, for many of the other gospel writers, because they begin with the birth of Jesus Christ, well, except for Mark just says, this is the beginning of the son of, of Jesus, Jesus, the son of God. And then he goes right into John the Baptist. Well, the other writers after the birth of Jesus or around the birth of Jesus all talk about John the Baptist because he was the forerunner of Jesus. And and next week we're going to see, we're going to get to understand a little bit of the ministry of of John the Baptist. But one of the things the Apostle John does, I think this beautiful here, is he says, yeah, John had some importance. John the Baptist had some importance. But I want you to see that Jesus actually preceded him, which is why John, why he writes in verses 6 to 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And he called people to repentance. And he prepared the way for Jesus. He called them to get on God's plan. But John the Baptist was clear that his primary ministry was to bear witness about the one who was to come. Now in that culture, normally the elder the older one would have precedence or have supremacy over the younger. Well, John is like six months older than Jesus. And so in their culture, John would be the elevated one. And yet in verse 15, we get to see John telling them, this is of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. John is very clear. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so just as an overture to an opera like Candide introduces musical themes that will be fully developed throughout the musical. And just as the opening credits of a movie like Mission Impossible might give you clues about the action that's going to ensue. So too here in the prologue of John's gospel. John, one of Jesus' disciples, artfully introduces themes that we get to unpack 
and as we read and study and meditate on his book. And I hope that we, we see what he's accomplishing, that our interest is piqued, that we want to gaze on the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of Jesus Christ. He is the living revelation of God. And I think John is doing this so that we would believe. And we talked about that a bit last week, about why he chose the signs he chose. And so I want to ask you, have you believed? Have you entrusted your life in his name? Not just his name, but in the work that he did. Have you been born of God? But beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, when you consider all that God did, his creative work, his coming into the world, how he addressed our sinful condition, how he left glory to put on human flesh. Oh, that we would delight in his word, that we would make time to to relish in what he has granted us here. That we would joyfully lay aside the comforts of this world, that we might live holy lives. I mean, think about the glories, the comforts that Jesus set aside on our behalf in heaven. And you might think, well, it's only like 30 something years. So what? I don't think we grasp all that he set aside, even for that short time. Oh, that we would find daily refuge in him. And may we rejoice in the opportunity to be ambassadors for Christ to the world around us. John is drawing us in and I pray that we would be in awe of this Jesus he's drawing us in to see. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Jesus, you stepping out of eternity to into this space. Help us to be in awe of you. Help us to order our lives around you. To fully glorify you with every breath that we have. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.